Welcome to the Wicked Aloha podcast, where we're talking paddling, life, and all things in between. In this, our first episode, we will talk about the Yukon 1000 and some of the things we learned and talk about a thousand miles of fun and pain. Please enjoy. If this is actually going to make the final thing, uh, here we go. First time ever. Better to start than never start, right? It's better to start than to never start. That's right. That's right. So. Cool. Here we are. First podcast. That's right. Introduction? Uh, yeah, my name is Will. Uh, I'm out here on Maui. Patrick is over in Nantucket, and uh, this is the Wicked Aloha podcast. Um, Episode 1.1. Episode one point one, and uh, yeah. So for our first our first shot at this, we decided to go bigger, go home, and we're going to talk about the Yukon one thousand. Um, That's right, the world's longest canoe race. Um, we figure we might as well start start with the big one, and then we yeah. elaborate from that. Yep. So we're just going to talk a little bit about um, things that made up the race, how we approached the race how we executed the race, and some things that we learned from doing the race. Uh, so that's that's what we're going to go over yeah. today. Yeah, and I would say another motivation for this was there's been several people that have reached out to both of us and asked for uh, pointers and tips, and the, the website and the race organizers have a pretty deep list of preparations and, and kit as they call it of you know gear list and all that so i don't know if we need to go over that stuff too much as they they cover it pretty good but i think of all the stuff that we did and the mistakes that we made and the things that we could have done differently would be a pretty good uh good place to start yeah i think another thing worth mentioning is that we we tried pretty hard to find some information about this race about true true this part of the world and there just isn't a lot no, and a lot of that has to do with because that part of the world is so remote. Yeah, uh, not too many people have been there, and I remember being on the river and you and I talking, and multiple times we just made mention of how there were so few people who had seen the things that we were were seeing at the time. Uh-huh. Right, we blown away by that, and and so it's it's pretty awesome to kind of go back over that stuff. And yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of a little reason why we're why we're talking about this today, uh, just to kind of shed light on a couple of things yeah. that we wish we had known, because yeah. it can make it can make someone's race that much better, um, that much faster, and more successful. Yeah. Uh, and definitely going into this, I had some reservations about giving away too much information because I kind of like doing things as kind of a survival or first time thing of not really checking the guidebooks too much, not really looking at maps a whole lot and just making, making it as much of an adventure as we can. Cause I kind of have a, I'm not really big into the knowing everything before you go, but I don't think, I think it's a big enough adventure on its own. Even the most prepared people are going to get out there and just be like, what the hell? You know, it's, it's still, there's enough adventure out there with a few little tips and pointers. It's not going to wreck the adventure for people, I don't think so. 
Yeah, I, I, I thought we were pretty well prepared. But at yeah. the same time, once, once we had feet on the ground, it was pretty evident that I don't think we were nearly as prepared as we could have been. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So maybe this will help someone. If it helps one person, this is success. Uh, yep. If it helps one team actually finish the race, it's a success. Uh, yeah. So let's... Uh, Let's talk a little bit about ourselves just real quickly. Um, just we'll get to know you. Don't have to, we're not going to talk too much here. Um, but Patrick and I met, I think, in 2009. Um, we did, was it 2010? Yeah. We met in 2010 uh, for a stand-up paddleboard race in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I live in Maui now, but I... I was origi- I'm originally from Massachusetts, and uh, I've been in the kayaking world for a long time, and then we made the switch over to stand-up paddle boarding, and we heard about this race up in Massachusetts, and um, so I went with my friend Mike Simpson. Um, he's, he's a whole other podcast that maybe we can, we can bring him in someday and we'll talk with him. But um, So I went up there with him to do this race, and Patrick was there, and that's when we first met. And probably for the next three, four years, we raced against each other uh, throughout Massachusetts, New England, uh, different places on the East Coast, uh, racing stand-up paddle boards. And so came pretty pretty good friends and competitors. We had never raced together before, and um, we came across this, this opportunity, actually. Yeah. Patrick did. But... Uh, so yeah, that's that's a little bit about how we met. Um, yeah. How did you get into stand-up paddleboarding? Um, I just uh, how did I get into it? Uh, just some <laughs> random foot, fo- just some photographs. <laughs> way way that's back. What I'll asking at this point. Yeah, I know, right? And why? No, but years ago, um, when the hell was it? It was like 2002 or something. That was just some early, early photos of Kalama and Laird were starting to surface. And I just, I had, a, I had a big tandem board. So I made a paddle and spent a couple of years like getting flogged and just stuck with it. And that was, uh, and then I think that first race we ever did was the one I did with you in 2010. And I actually couldn't afford a race board. So I made one. I think the only people at the time that were making them were uh, Hobie. I, in 2010, it was the only race board going when they were making those all carbon ones and i went actually went down to north carolina right after that race and it was the it was the predecessor to the carolina cup it was the intercoastal sub cup and there were two guys down there i can't remember their names but they both had the uh the hobie black carbon boards actually nash had one too it was that javelin back in the day remember that it was like 26 and 3 eighths wide and it was like 26 that's no you can't even stand on that and now it's like People are racing 21s in the open ocean. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, I don't know. It was just kind of – I paddled canoes and kayaks and stuff as a kid, but that was uh, that was kind of the start. So I remember first hearing about the Yukon from Ben Freeberg. Yep. Uh, he was going for the distance world record. That's right. That's right. Paddleboard. Yep. If I remember correctly, he did it solo before he did the race. 
Yeah, he only did that one day, though. His his attempt was a 24-hour distance record, if I'm not mistaken. I think he did – he told me that he, his boat guy, his support guy, they took him from Whitehorse to the other side of Lake LaBarge, where it really starts funneling there, and you get that fast current. He wanted to be in the fastest part of the river, so he had him take him to uh, just the other side of Lake LaBarge, and then I think he went to – he finished up in Carmack, so he did – I think it was like 125 miles in a day or some 124 or something like that and then he pulled out in carmax and went back to whitehorse so i want to say he did closer to 230 or 240 oh. miles you're probably right because at 10 mile per hour current that's not very far in 24 hours yeah i think you're right i think it was 240 but that's neither here nor there uh, but as far as the and then he did it with his wife um, yeah. a couple of years later. Yeah, so 2014, I had just gone through my divorce, and I was living in Georgia, kind of have, in a really bad spot, living in a storage facility in my in my shaping shop. And he was like, dude, you should come with us through the Yukon. And I really tried to go. I built a board for it. I was I was trying to go, and I just – it was just, my life was in such fucking wreckage that I couldn't pull it off, and they ended up going without me. And then that's when it was just like, I got, it was the redemption trip when, you know, I think it was 2014 they went and then they did it in 2016. We didn't get it that year because it's only every two years. And then 2018, we made it happen. And that's when you and I went up and did it. So what, what kind of sparked the idea to actually do it one and then how, you and I um, to team up to do it together. So what was the what was the the spark that got it going? Yeah, for me or for those guys? For you, for us. I think it was just when you look at it as as far as paddling races go, it's the it's the Grand Poobah, it's the biggest one, and if you're gonna you know it's just there's the approach of oh, we can do the River Quest first, which a lot of people do. Like, you know, people that go to Mola kind of like, oh, I'll do it as a team first. That's one approach, but I've always found that it's best to just dive in and, and go for it because what if something happens? What if we go and we do the, the 400 and then the, something happens and we never go back? It's just might as well just go for it. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's the biggest one. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's it sounded so crazy and so out there. It was like, Let's go for it. Right. And then, obviously, you were the only choice. You're the only one that would even consider such a thing. <laughs> and I mean, there there were some other people that were that had kind of half-heartedly said, "Oh, dude, I want to go," but it's like, you know, knowing what I know now after having done it, dude, I'm so glad I chose you as a partner because those times, those like day four day. If you got anybody that's even remotely less than 100% committed, that could just be a fucking disaster. I mean, you're you're like, you know, it's a very expensive ejection. You know, you, you decide to tap out and, you know, you're leaving 10 grand in gear behind and not to mention all the other stuff, the, the, the regret and everything else. But you get up somebody that's pretty solid when you're feeling as bad as you ever felt before. It's good to, to know you can lean on your partner a little bit. Yeah, I think by day four we were we were pretty tapped. Our yeah. everything was hurting. 
Um, arms weren't working properly. No. Your, your back was all messed up. Yeah. We had a lot of we had a lot of breakdowns happening, and uh, yeah. it it was important that we were both able to kind of not only push past it uh, physically, but we were only able to do that I think because we pushed we were able to push past it mentally. So, yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot of uh, mental fortitude happening. Yeah. But without that, it's not even worth showing up. No. No. It's, it, it really is an adventure in the sense that something is going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, so, because as, to quote Mike Simpson, it's not an adventure unless something goes wrong. Yeah, that's an old Patagonia, that's his name, Yvonne Chouinard quote, too. Oh, is that his quote, maybe? Yeah. It's not really an adventure till something goes wrong. Um, so when we were getting ready for the race, um, we went over a list of different things, one that we would need, how, you know, our route, planning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, having done the race now, realize that we missed a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. And in our discussions, we basically decided that it's all basically a systems management and you have oh. a number of different systems that you need oh. to address. And oh. if you don't manage those appropriately and you have a weak system in place and that could just bring everything down it could totally crumble the tower yeah uh, and it's not so, just choosing yeah it wasn't it's not choosing one system it's maintaining all five all the time full time 24 hours with maybe a three hour sleep break in there but so so let's start talking about the systems um the first obviously is is the you know your own personal health mm-hmm. um, health of your partner and and managing pain managing managing your energy um, yep. sleep stuff like that um, yep. so I guess how how did we get ready to manage that stuff I don't think we knowingly did but no um, looking back yeah I would say to start with the injury prevention, internal, external, that being like tendons, muscles, blisters, butt sores, back, cuts, bugs, like, you know, internal bugs, like getting bad water, whatever. But I think it became very evident that the end of day one, when we both had gaping open sores in our butt cracks and blisters, and it's like, oh man, we just did 18 hours of hard paddling and we got six more days to go, and we've got open sores on our ass. We've got blistered hands. I mean, my hands weren't too bad because we taped them up, but it was like I was already feeling the tendons in my elbows. Like, you know, you start thinking about that stuff of like, how is is this shit gonna hold on for another seven days? Yeah, and that you have to you have to maintain, you know, because you know, for an example, the that sore you had in your butt, I mean, that thing, you know, basically it was numerous times a day with the, the, uh, Neosporin. I mean, if that got infected day three by day six, if your immune's tapped because you're completely out of water, I mean, out of gas, 
and out of energy and you've got nothing to fight the bugs, that can be pretty bad. Yeah, that was a concern. Uh, yeah. That was probably one of the worst rashes, <laughs> chaffage that I think I've ever had. Yeah, that was that was one of the stories I wanted to mention in this too. Is that was pretty intimidating. I think it was day two when I had to spread your cheeks to check out the uh, <laughs> the wound. I've never done that before. It was like, oh man. But when you're out there and you're that tired and that into the what's going on, you know, you don't you don't care anymore. It's just. So at, at that time, that was my biggest source of pain. Really. Everything else felt fine. I mean, like my muscles ached, but it, that was that was something I'd felt before. Yeah. But that chafe was so bad, and if we hadn't had baby powder for it, yeah, I I don't know what because <laughs> the baby powder was able to dry it out so it could heal. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But going into it, I, I know I I had taken first aid classes before. You'd taken some first aid classes too, yeah. I think. So yeah. long time ago. But. So we were relatively prepared in that route. You know, we we could if something had happened, we could put on more than just a band aid. Yeah. So I I think that was kind of minorly important that if if shit had had hit the fan, we could have. We could have wiped it up. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. I, what's that? Oh, it's interesting that because there was so much going on and so much agonizing discomfort in every area, I completely forgot how bad that butt sore hurt because mine was ripped up pretty bad too. And I remember that thing just fucking hurting, man, so bad. Yeah. Um, that that was by far my biggest source of pain for the first two days, and then yeah. it went on to other uh, other parts of my body. Yeah, but definitely important to take care of the small small cuts so they don't become something big. Yeah. Um, as far as sleep, we were so I think we were only averaging about three hours of sleep. Yeah. Would you say that's correct? Absolutely, man. Because by, by the time we got the boat out, unpacked the things that we needed, set up a, you know, got water boiling, set up the tent, ate some food, like the time just starts ticking. Oh. I think I think that was probably the the biggest mistake that a lot of people made is you assume it's like oh it's eighteen hours on I'll get six hours of sleep but you don't man when you consider that you have to get the boat pulled over, set up camp, get cleaned up, make dinner, break down camp, and then go to bed and then reverse that in the morning. And that's, you know, we'll get, we'll get to that efficiency thing later on, but I would say that, you know, with the food and all that, again, we'll get through it in the, in the later, later on here, but having that efficiency and keeping everything to, you just have to imagine you have to do everything when you're most exhausted as you've ever been in your life. You're setting your tent up when you're smoked. You're cooking when you're smoked. You're trying to like start a fire. You're just completely out of your mind. And it's, if you can cut that time, I think we were doing like, you know, probably 45 minutes from setting up camp to making meals and then 
you know, getting a few minutes in the water, we were probably 45 minutes to an hour. If you could cut that like monotony, the, the necessities of camp work to 20 minutes, 25 minutes, there's an extra 15 minutes of sleep right there. I don't know how much that's going to help, but you know, every little bit helps. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think that 15 minutes of sleep sounds, sounds like a lot. <laughs> Man, those, those mornings you woke me up, I, I thought I was dead. It was just like, I was so far gone in sleep. It was just like coming to like, Whoa, what, what's going on here? Yeah. You, I think we would each fall asleep within like 30 seconds of that head hitting pillow. Yeah. One, because we knew in the back of our heads we had a very limited sleep, so we couldn't yeah. end race. And two, because we were just so wasted that uh, there was no other option. Yeah. Um, I'll put some clips in here, too, as we as we edit this down. Like a couple of clips from inside the tent when we're just going to bed that first night. Like, you can see, it's just like in zombies. Uh, one, one interesting thing that we could talk about is uh sleeping in the boat yeah i know that my eyes closed a couple times <laughs> yeah and i was up front so I, i'm sure you could probably notice when i when i would doze off yeah um you were in the back so i i didn't see when you were sleeping oh, but man. i could kind of feel that i was pulling more yeah <laughs> Get, it was a strange thing to actually be in the act of paddling and f just completely pass out in mid-stroke. Like, you just dropped. and was like, whoa. So, there was more than a couple times where I would uh, just close my eyes and keep paddling. So, that was kind of putting a lot of trust in you to, <laughs> to yeah. be awake at that time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you actually knew I was doing that or not. I can um, kind of tell. I remember there was one day, um, I think it was day four, or, it was either day three or day four, and um, it was a really, really, really hot day, and we'll talk, oh, yeah. talk more about sun exposure, but we were getting into uh, that second second thing of wildfires. Um, right back before Eagle. I think it was right before Eagle, yep. right? And um, it was so hot, and the, the heat was just getting to me so badly that I just kept closing my eyes and paddling. And then I'd, like, be awake for 20 minutes and paddle for 20 minutes hard, and then I'd just close my eyes again for, like, five minutes or something yeah. like that and keep paddling. Yeah. And I didn't really go to sleep, but... It just felt so good to keep my eyes closed. Yeah. Um, I don't. I think there was too much sun for me that day, or something. But um, yeah. And then on the second to last day, I remember I, I finally just broke, and I was like, I got to take a nap. My back. Yeah. Was, my back was not. It was like spasming. And yeah, I remember that. We were going through that real windy part. It was. It was like, I think that was one of my first major breakdowns of the of the race, where I, I just I had to stop and take yeah. take a break. But I knew that we couldn't get off the river. Yeah. So um, I'm really glad that you, you could keep going while I uh, took oh, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, 
There was plenty of times, and it's interesting since we've since we've been back. What I um, I keep reading about these people now, like these ultra people that take these micro naps, and that's something that I discovered out there. It was like I think it was even day two when I was just like I couldn't stay awake. I'm like, dude, I gotta I gotta put my head down for a minute, and I'd lay my paddle across the rails. I just put my head down and I found that if I could lose consciousness for even 30 seconds to like 90 seconds, two minutes, I could come back and be like, all right, cool, I'm awake. It's, it was a weird thing about tricking your body into believing it was asleep. And then once you can snap out of it, you're back in the game for like, even if it's just an hour, you get rid of that drowsiness. It was crazy to, to, to experience that. Yeah. And like those little naps completely they're 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 game changers um, i don't think you could do it without i mean i don't know how the stand-up guys did it i don't know if they laid down and like took five or what but man i think i think bart said he did but, yeah um he would be another interesting person to talk to something yeah, uh, yeah. He's right here on maui um he's got a, a shop locally a windsurf shop and uh, oh yeah so maybe someday i can get him get him to yeah talk to me yeah but that was so one one thing that i had never really thought about uh before the race before being there um one sleeping in a canoe and paddling yeah two how bad the sun was going to be yeah that was that was humbling so i i kind of went in with the attitude of i've lived in hawaii for four years I work out in the sun every day. Like I'm there's no way the sun's going to affect me. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest kicks to the groin that I think that there was like, yeah. I could not have expected the sun to be as bad as it was. <sighs> um, around seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. That's when the sun seemed the worst. That was the crazy thing is how late it was. It was like, I remember putting on zinc at like 8.30 at night and just getting, like, felt like you're in an oven, just getting blasted. Right. Like, I had never been somewhere where there's 24 no. daylight. No. So it, you know, it's one of those unknowns that we just didn't think of. Yeah. Um, you know, on the, on the race kit, it says sunscreen SPF 50. Yeah. That's it. That's it. it doesn't say you're going to be paddling on the surface of hell. <laughs> for seven days. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I think I read that it was a drought year that year and that it was abnormally hot, but still. Yeah. No, who would have thought, you know, who would have thought that I think what Eagles close to the Arctic circle, right? I mean, we were very close to the Arctic circle and we were just getting our skin cooked off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that was that was definitely one thing I did not prepare for. Um, no. It was nice to have extra clothes uh, for the mornings. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to be as cold as I was. Yeah. Um, I think just taking off from that. What I found, like that first morning we got up, putting on, we had those NRS uh, dry pants and having the socks on there and keeping your feet and your body dry was crucial. 
You know what I mean? I remember I remember Ben saying he put his dry suit on and he didn't take it off for the entire trip. And then he ended up with like trench foot or something. But there's something about like that kind of care where you stay dry and you keep your skin healthy. Because I remember we would put all of our dry gear on and we paddled probably till like eight o'clock and then strip it off as it got hot. And it's yeah. just, it's one thing you got to remember too is it's not a camping trip where if bad weather comes in, you're just going to like pull over and get in the tent and ride the day out. It's like, you have to stay in the boat. So you have to remember when you're going into this, that your clothing is your shelter for 18 hours a day. So, you know, that's not a place to skimp. If you're going to, if you're going to do this, I would say invest in the best gear you can get or look for some kind of assistance through a company or whatever, but definitely don't be afraid to, uh, to kind of go all out on the clothing because if it's pissing rain and lightning and you're on the, the water, that's, you know, all there is between you and the sky is your jacket and your pants. So. Yep. I think our, so we had, we had our paddling clothes. We had our after paddling clothes. Yep. So nice to have those after paddling clothes. Yeah. Oh, so I, I'd have compression pants on and dry pants on over that. And then I'd have, had my my big neoprene rubber boots. Um, yep, those muck boots. The muck boots. Those are crucial. And so that kept my legs dry. Yep. And you know, which was really important. Oh yeah. Everything I had going on on my rear end. Oh yeah. Um, and then then just layering the clothes on the top half. So yep. As as we started paddling, just take one layer off. Like yeah. to the point where we were just down to like sun shirts and compression paddling. Yep. Because it got that hot. Yeah. And we were still just dripping in sweat. Yeah. So. What's interesting is the, the information you get from the organization itself, but also the information you see on YouTube and other people talking about the races, everybody emphasizes how cold the river is. They're like, oh, it's the Yukon, it's all snow, snow melt. But I mean, as you well know, we were jumping in the river multiple times a day just to cool off. I mean, I paddled in shorts virtually every day except the day it rained. There was shorts and a sun shirt. It was like tropical. It was crazy. Yeah. And the water was actually refreshing. I mean, there were days like I think it was day two or three when we hit that when we first hit the White River and that smoke came in the sun the uh, the forest fire. Yep. We were just overheating. We pulled over. Remember when that island we jumped in the water for a while and that barge came by, and it was just. I mean, there were multiple times when we pulled over to cool off because it was just like, dude, we gotta we gotta bring the temperature down because overheating is just as bad as underheating, you know. Right, and it's not like we had ice cubes in our water or anything to, no. to keep our water cold to no. cool our body off while we were taking yeah um i'd say the water is probably like mid 50s high 50s it definitely wasn't freezing but it wasn't warm either no it, i mean it was it was water that you could get hypothermic in very, sure very sure quickly. yeah careful um, yeah but as as far as like when we got done at the end of the day there was nothing better than just jumping in yeah, there totally trying to drown out all the inflammation that we had built up all day yeah yeah just like the theory of ice, ice baths um, yep exactly so um, 
So it was it was nice to do that, and then yeah, it's just it's one of those rewards that yeah that you want to have for yourself because at yeah. the end of the day, you're just you're looking for something to keep you going. Yeah. And to recharge you, and yeah. it took us a few days to figure out that we could build fire everywhere we were. Yeah. I think, I think we had foregone that the first few days just because we were we were just kind of scrambling every night to, yeah. to set up and we wanted to maximize our sleep and we didn't think that something as simple as making the fire would uh, kind of rejuvenate our mind. I know. And it's, um, a, it's amazing how big that became as far as like comfort and just enjoyment and like morale the fire was huge i mean I, I was looking back over the video the other day and i don't think we had it was day three we had just landed on that island and, and uh tenth life had just pulled in it was the moose track island and we were eating i said this is the first hot meal in three days we'd been eating cold food for like three days i think the first day we pulled over which we'll get to that as well as in strategy but we pulled over. Remember, we pulled over early. And we're like, yeah, we'll make food and then we'll get back on the river, and so the bears don't come to our campground. And we're sitting there with the boat completely unloaded on the beach, and here comes tenth life blowing by us. We're like, holy shit! Throw everything back in the boat, including the partially cooked meal. Jump back in the boat for two more hours, and then pull over at that ratty cabin site, and then eating cold food. You know, it was just. But we'll get to the strategy part of it too. But that was. Uh, yeah, man, those those rewards, the fire and the soaking in the river and just like staying dry, that, that stuff is crucial because so many aspects of everything that's going on is just you're at like survival level, your endurance, your fitness, your fatigue, everything is so tapped that every little thing like getting some warmth off a of fire or that um, that oatmeal we were eating in the morning, that granola with raspberries, that warm granola and then passing the coffee pot back and forth. Dude, that was like life-saving stuff, man. We would each have our coffee, and then we'd make an extra pot at a 32-ounce flask, and we would just top off the flask with hot coffee in the first three or four hours of the day, just tossing the bottle back and forth, which I would recommend we didn't do, but putting a tagline on it, because it did go overboard once, and we almost lost our coffee and our, our flask, so that would have sucked. But Yeah, no, just think just things like that, you know, just keeping yourself getting little rewards and little comforts are huge, man. Yeah. Um so as far as food, we we brought a bunch of MREs from Yep. Expedition Foods. Yep. Company based in England. Yep. Super high calorie. How many calories were in each one of those? It's like 1,200, I think. They were the endurance ones or something. They have two different levels, and I think those breakfasts had 1,200 calories in them, and the dinners were around 1,000 or more. So we were, were we eating two of those a day or three? We were doing breakfast and dinner, and then we were just power barring, and like we had that salami stick and some other things. I don't think we were doing a lunch. We were just snacking off bars in that midday. So we... But we were by the end of day, like on our last night, we were down to like, I think we had three rice packs left from your rice, your your uh, instant rice kits. I would have definitely packed a couple more meals just because I didn't realize the amount of calories we'd be burning. So we were, I mean, we were down to nothing when we got to the end. We had, you know, as far as our, our meals went, we were, we had pretty much tapped the, the whole cash, you know? 
Yeah, we pretty much would have been screwed if we hadn't finished when we did. Yeah, yeah. But so, in in hindsight, we probably should have been eating a lot more than we were. Yeah. Because if each one of those is only 1,200 calories, that's 2,400 calories, and then there's no way that we were making up for no. all the calories we were burning. No. Um, but, but the trouble is with unless you brought like a hot jar or something it's it's impossible to cook on the boat like i thought when we were getting ready for this i'm like oh i'm gonna bring a stand-up paddleboard paddle because we can just stand up and like rest our leg muscles that's not happening and like oh i'll just fire up the stove on the boat that's not happening you're not gonna be, you're not cooking anything on the boat man uh, you know you might be able to like duct tape the stove to the deck if you're doing kayak but you know, the only option if you wanted a hot lunch would be bring an extra food container, cook it in the morning after your breakfast, put it in the container and tuck it in the boat. That would probably have been smart, but, you know, we didn't know. We didn't know. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's not happening. Uh, and we, we lost our pickles at the beginning. Those would have been good. But on the, on the topic of the food, too... Um, I would say, like, there was a couple of meals that were, like, eating heaven. Like, one that comes to mind, the meal of the trip for me was a spaghetti carbonara with bacon. I don't remember what day it was. I think it was, like, day four after the second Kiwi team passed us, or day five. I remember having that meal, and it was just, like, it was, it was like, another world, otherworldly experience. Whereas my chicken tiki masala and my Thai veggies with rice were, like, oh, my God. I'm only eating it because I have to. It was awful. You know, I didn't... Uh, I, so I, I stayed with all the vegetarian meals. Yep. And I don't think any of them were bad. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because my perceptions were all skewed at the time. Because yeah. Because yeah. I consumed something. Yeah. I will say that the the granola with the strawberries was terrible when it wasn't hot. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, it was pretty I remember, bad. I remember dumping just cold water in there and drinking or eating it, and yeah. it, it tasted like I was eating someone's throw up. Yeah, that yeah, was pretty tough. Yeah, the one thing that you, that you didn't uh, partake of that I was it was total lifesaver for me was that salami stick man that thing was like when i saw that thing it was like the peanut butter we saw the peanut butter it was like oh, we have peanut butter it was the same with the salami it's like oh my god we got salami just that salty oh it was so good man so good i wish we had brought a second one because i think we ran out pretty early it was just i just kept hitting that thing and it was and i was just taking bites just like <laughs> back in the thing that's what but i would supposed to be huh that's what the pickles were supposed to be just that's what they were supposed to be if you're gonna get pickles get a plastic jar not glass yeah yeah, yeah. uh and then when we put the uh the goo in the peanut butter the chocolate goo oh my god that was that was another one that was like that the was chocolate the goo in the peanut butter oh what did we do? We stuck like five goos in that whole jar and just stirred it up. I think so. 
Yeah, that so, was that was phenomenal. That was another. I that was, that was, but it was. <laughs> that was one hell of a treat. Come two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then every night, we would immediately turn to sports nutrition. Yep. The protein powder. Uh, yeah, you definitely had that more dialed than I did. I didn't even consider it when we were leaving, and yeah, I was watching you every night. Like, God damn, he's got like a whole chem lab over there, just like with a shaker bottle. I thanks for sharing, man. But that stuff was crucial. Yeah, that's why it was brought. There's yeah. nothing. There's nothing like coming across the border with uh, gallon Ziploc bags of white powder. <laughs> yeah. Make your experience, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Full. Um, yeah, we we used Vega protein powder, and we were using uh, proven nutrition products. Yeah. Uh, I know other teams uh, were using Infinite Nutrition, which you've used in the past. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I have never used Infinite, and I didn't want to change anything. No, not that early. Not that late in the game. Exactly. That's like it's one of the parallel rules of rate is don't change no nutrition wise the no. week of the week during no. just no. whatever you've been training with that's what you use yeah but you kind of broke that rule but <laughs> oh so, so many times uh but it, it worked out okay yeah we, we got lucky um, yeah so the food that would segue into the oh the, that would segue into the next hold on I got my battery's showing low here I gotta make sure I'm still working okay good I'm back on um that would segue into the next system which would be food and water and we kind of covered. The we food choices of, huh? We covered a lot of the food already. Yeah, I would say, and this could fall into the strategy category, but the one I would say our biggest mistake was um, part of that mistake was not being organized, but the organization of food. Like we jumped into both the first day because we were all fired up on our our start strategy, and we're like, you know, you grabbed a couple of Cliff bars and I grabbed a couple of Cliff bars, and it was just like, oh, we'll just pull over when we need some. But, you know, we'll get to the, the flaws of that when we get to the strategy system. But uh, the trick would be is to have daily ration bags. You have, you have seven days on the river, have seven days each where you have a dry bag that's marked day one, day two, whatever. Just grab it, throw it in the boat, and go. And that would have your two hot meals, all of your food for the day, your salami, whatever. That would, be, that would have been the smart thing to do as opposed to – you know, you don't want to get that bear, bear barrel out, but once a day. You don't want to have to open that thing up, man. Yeah, that was kind of something we drastically overlooked was the availability to get things. Yeah. It's, if it's not right in the boat right next to you, no. it means you're stopping and pulling over. And yeah. Thing, and yeah. Every minute that you're not on the river, someone else is on the river and they're yeah. getting on you. Yeah, and we might as well we might as well talk about that then because we're already in it. So part of that strategy was 
is we went into it thinking, oh, you know, we got to take a, take a leak. We'll just pull over and take a leak. We got to get food. I think we probably pulled over five or six times just on Lake LaBarge. And we were battling with the Kiwis, the first place team, and we would catch them and pass them. And then we'd pull over to take a piss and then we'd have to catch them again. Then we'd pull over to take another piss and then we'd have to catch them again. But I think we pulled over probably at least four times, maybe five in the lake. It was a lot of times. I mean, we probably stopped like eight, nine times that first day. I don't and then we finally realized like nobody else is stopping. And that's when we got the piss jug idea and everything else, which is. But that being said, that's the crucial thing is it is a race. And the people that are racing seriously, they get in the boat and they don't stop until the end of the day. They take a dump in the boat, they pee in the boat, they eat in the boat, they drink in the boat. I mean, There's I would no say... Taking a dump in the boat. No, there's not. No, there's not. <laughs> there's <laughs> definitely not. No. I'm sure somebody did, but I, I couldn't do it. That's what you got to take care of that in the morning or whatever, but it's also a good afternoon stop. Yeah. And, and later in the race, we were stopping for more important things like, like water. Yeah, you know, yeah. water water is important. We find uh, different different streams where yeah. the water would be cleaner than where we were paddling. Yeah. Um, once you hit the White River, the water is just so silty. It's it's not even. Yeah. Uh, it it's like drinking mud almost. You have yeah. to let water settle in your bag. Um, but I remember that first day trying to pump water with with a water pump because the water pump was on the gear list. We nope. you know, don't even bring it. Don't even bring it. Well, I think it's, I think it was part of the required gear list. And was it? And we had it. And, uh, it was looking at it now. It's just like, it's a waste. It's completely it's, a waste of space. And totally. Weight. Totally. Uh, Outside of, you know, the, the water in the lake and the water prior to the White River is clear enough where you can scoop some up, drop a tablet in, boom. Because I guarantee you, if you're going to be spending calories on anything, you're not going to want to be pumping water for a half an hour every night after you paddle for 18 hours. And that's really the only time. There's no time on the river. There's no time. And once you get into the White, as we discovered, it doesn't take a lot of skill to locate the feeder streams, as we discovered. You just kind of look at the bank and we'd see that little dark strip and you look, you know, you just look for two valleys coming down like this with a little black on the beach from the water. And it's a five minute stop. You pull over, you load your bags, you drop the tablets in. And, you know, I mean, by the end, I was drinking that cloudy water. I was, I was so tired. And that's another story was we had those two lemonade bottles. One of them was for water. One of them was the piss jug. And I remember being in the back, like it was day six and I was just, it was when we hit the 250 miles of upwind. And I remember grabbing the jug and I'm just like, <laughs> this is either the piss jug or it's the water jug. And if it's the piss jug, there's been two dicks stuck in this bottle like 87 times over the last five days. And I remember just being like thinking about that and then thinking like, I don't really care. I'm just going to wash it out. And I filled it with water and I threw the tablets in and... I drank from it. It wasn't the best water. I mean, you're drinking silty brown water, but you're so tired, you don't even care. You just, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of gross, but it's kind of like, well, do I want really, really want to pull over again? No. And plus, once you get out of the mountains and you get out into the tundra there, the last two or three days, 
it's really hard to find feeder streams because you don't have the mountains like the first three days where you have big, humongous mountains with creeks running down. Once you get into that tundra, man, especially after the flats, there's, I mean, good luck finding a feeder stream. You see them, but so, but you're yeah. not pumping. I mean, I, if you want to pump water, you're wasting your time. I remember the last couple of days just filling my camelbacks or my water bladders right from the river. And because yep. the hose is just a little bit higher than the bottom of the bag, yep. if I hung the bag vertically, all the silt would just be down oh, the bottom, yeah. and it would be right above the hose. Yep. Like you said, the pills, yeah. uh, just drop the pills in. Yep. And by that point, whether we're talking about food or we're talking about water, taste is your least important oh yeah variable in anything it's just about fueling yourself and going back to that first first thing that we talked about and keeping yourself healthy yeah it doesn't matter what the 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 cold oatmeal tastes like you know no it doesn't matter that the water has a has a ting to it no what matters is that you you don't have you know some some virus you know yeah you aren't shitting yourself yeah that you have energy every day Um, yeah taste is the least important thing yeah on your mind yeah if if it comes down to pumping water for half hour to an hour or sleeping (laughs) you're choosing sleep always always um there's no yeah, I, f- I forget what the pill brand was that we used, but they were, it was like a blue package. And they don't even really taste too much like chlorine anymore. I mean, I didn't find it that bad. They were just, and you get in that the cycle where you have two bottles going, you have one you're drinking from and one that's being treated. So you fill one, put the pill in. When it's ready, you sip off that, then you fill a second one and let that one start treating. And there was that one place when we passed... Um, right out of Dawson. We got out of Dawson and we got into those really phenomenally beautiful canyons. And it was really serene. We're listening to music. It was our first day of music. And we found that, remember that feeder stream? We found that big ass stream. And there was that house up on the cliff there. I filled my bottle from there. And I was, I remember thinking to myself, like, I just want to taste some pure water. Like I'll never get this experience again. So I didn't put a tablet in it and I just guzzled the thing. And I remember thinking like, after I did it, I was like, that could end the race right there. Like if this, if I get Giardia and it hits me two days from now, the race is over. So it was kind of stupid, but at the same time, it was like, man, that water was good. It was as pure water as you find anywhere. Yeah. I probably should have treated it, but it was just too good to not drink. It was just like this primal, like drink the water. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, that's funny. Yeah. But remember that water, how good it was? Yeah. So good. Cold, too. Yeah. Uh, so we covered food choices, organization, we're done the water and the coffee thing. Yeah. So I guess kind of camp is the next topic. And that's that's pretty simple, right? Yes and no. Yeah. Um. Obviously, we're camping on the river. You don't have someone setting it up for you. Uh, it is talk- the most. It is definitely the most tedious thing. We have touched a little bit on some gear that you need, gear you don't need. As far as uh, 
the camping gear went, I think it requires you to have a zero degree sleeping bag. Yeah. Which zero degree sleeping bags are not small. No. And they're not light. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure every year they make them lighter and lighter. Yeah. However, they're also not easy to find. No. I remember scouring the internet looking for one and eventually found one somewhere. And it, I don't know, it was just big and bulky. I was glad I had it. There were some nights where it was cold. And yeah. Just despite how hot we were all day. Yeah. At the night, or at the end of, yeah, at the end of the night. Um, yeah. It, it was <laughs> nice to crawl into a sleeping bag. Yeah. Most nights I just threw it over the top of me as a blanket and just slept directly on my pad. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far as a tent went, I think we went with a, was it a three man? Yeah. A little three bit more room. Was it three season or four season? I can't, I can't remember. Yeah. Four um, seasons are pretty burly. There's not a whole lot of like serious four season tents out there. And the ones yeah. that are expensive and they're gnarly. It's probably three season. It might have been four though. Yeah. Either way. Um, yeah. I made sure that when I got it, I knew how to set it up efficiently. That's key. It it was it was relatively easy. Um, you know, just the poles all snapped together. Boom, 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 boom. And yeah. then I could put it together on my own, which was important because as I was doing that, yeah, you were you were heating up water, you were doing other things. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, we kind of split the responsibilities that way. Um, so I guess it's just a matter of shopping around and finding something that is going to be suitable for what yeah. you, is going to be efficient. Um, yeah. The main thing is like like you were saying is to get familiar with it before you leave. Don't get on the river and be like, fuck, how do I set this thing up? Go through it until you can do it, you know, easily. Yeah. And uh, if you don't have this gear already, it just, we might talk about how expensive this race is to begin with, Um, but if you don't have this gear already, be prepared to swallow a pretty expensive pill. Um, Yeah. Because... The costs just keep adding up. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So we keep talking about how we cook food and and everything. I think one of the most important pieces of gear we brought was the jet boil. Oh man. Was that a last minute purchase? It was. We bought it in Whitehorse because I had the I had the the the, the uh, whisper light, the pumper stove, and I'm right. so glad we left that thing because I mean. You know, from an environmental standpoint, you, you reuse the bottle and all that. But, again, it comes down to just extra stuff to do. And to be, after 18 hours of paddling, do you really want to pump a fuel can and try to get a stove to light and prime it? The jet boil was open gas, click button, you have fire. It was amazing in its simplicity. And, I mean, I would say that were similar and definitely bring extra fuel. But... Uh, that was the thing that I found is the first thing when you wake up in the morning, start the water. The first thing when you get off the river, start the water. So as you're setting up the camp, as you're starting the fire, you've got water going. You get one meal ready. You get the second meal ready. So by the time you're done setting up, you got a hot meal waiting for you, you know? And 
Correct me if I'm wrong. TSA doesn't like the fuel cans. No, you have to get them there. Okay, that's what you I can't fl- You can't fly with them, yeah. Yeah. But I that think- being said, there is two or three big outfitters right in, in Whitehorse that are pretty uh, – I mean, there was a lot of people from the race that one day we went in. People were buying all kinds of stuff. Man, we were looking at like an espresso maker, which I'm glad we didn't get, but <laughs> – but you're right. You know, you get to a certain point and you look and you're like, Jesus, I've just spent like $800 in town getting ready for this race. But we didn't we didn't buy the espresso maker, but you did bring your AeroPress. I did. That just was a lifesaver. We yeah. also we also had some of the little uh, instant coffee, I think. Um, yeah, those Vias, like the Starbucks stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But yeah. the AeroPress is just... You know, it's. I think I'm a coffee drinker, so um, coffee for me is right up there with building a fire or yeah. jumping in the river. It's one of those rewards oh. that we somehow thought of to bring with us throughout the day. We sacrificed a hydro flask and yeah. put up, and yep. man, I am so glad we did because oh. that. Even though it was hot, the weather was hot, whatever. Just a little hit of coffee, man. It's like, that's a reward. Yep. Boost was fantastic. Yep. Um, yep. So that that was... Yeah, and that, that little um, AeroPress, if you use a little funnel base, it fits right in the, aero, the, the hydro flask and just bump, pumps right down. Weighs nothing. It's amazing. Just bring a good, a nice espresso grind, pour the hot water over it, pump it down. You, you do three. You know, you do yours, mine, and then we fill the thermos, and it's amazing, man. And the AeroPress does come with a little funnel. It, yeah, the funnel was, was what, what goes into the mouth of the uh, hydro flask. Yeah. I don't think we brought it. I think I was freaking balancing that thing on the top and trying to push it in, but you looking back, I would have brought it. You didn't bring it. No. Because I remember it was actually just a couple months ago that you mentioned to me, damn, I wish we had brought the funnel. I know. I bring the funnel. See, I thought the funnel was just for putting water in the top. I didn't realize that the base fit in and went into smaller thermos mouths. I saw that after the fact. And I also, you know, since we're on the topic of camp with the sleeping pads, like I had that one with the roll top where you do the thing where you stand back and you blow in and it sucks in more air. But I got yeah. on the river and I was like, I forgot, is this just for fast deflation? So I sat there the whole night, like trying to pump up this three inch thick base camp thickness sleeping pad. And there was a one night when I didn't even close the end of it and I was blowing for like 10 minutes, seeing triple. And I realized that I was just blowing air into the environment, you know, to the atmosphere. But if I was going to substitute one piece of gear, I would leave the water pump at home and bring a foot pump for the sleeping pads, figure out a way to fill those things with your foot while you're doing something else because blowing it with your lungs is just, oh. Remember how dizzy you get? You're just like, oh, my God. Well, just, mine isn't too bad. Um, yours wasn't? Mine was a thermorest, and it yeah. um, it does it self-inflate, or it's supposed to self-inflate, but I would just blow into it to, um, to help it along the process, and it wasn't yeah. too bad. But... I think another thing that helped us was where we chose to camp. Uh, a lot yeah. of the spots 
it's not like we were camping on rocks or anything. No, no. We could almost always find some sort of little sandbar. Yeah. You, you probably could have slept on it even without the camping pads. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we got pretty lucky. I mean, I think after that first night when we slept on the bank and we had that sketchy cabin, I think every night after that, we started looking for an island around a half hour to 11. And yep. it, seemed, it seemed like every single night, whether we were 10 minutes before or five minutes after the cutoff, we would always find an island to sleep on. And we always, the last, the only time we slept on the bank was the first night. Every other night was on the, uh, was on an island. And they were usually, most of them were sandy. Yeah, I remember that that third night when we slept on that, we found that island that had the moose tracks going all across it, and there was just kind of higher river banks everywhere, and we were just wasted, so we're just like, screw it, this is fine. Yeah. I got done setting up the tent, and a gust of wind (laughs) blew it, and it was going end over end yep. and I start sprinting there's nothing like a, a good you know 100 yard sprint after paddling for 18 hours a day I remember it was, like a, it was like a tumbleweed it was just going down the beach man and we caught it <laughs> and then it happened again the next I, night yep. <laughs> I, I, eagle. that one in Eagle that would have been a, a shit show man because that bank just ran straight off into the river yeah the river was right there. Yeah. That one, I don't know how we got that. Yeah, that was like one of those like, yeah. just from the clutches of death. Yeah. Imagine so, if we lost our tent. Oh my God. Put rocks down on your tent. That's the moral of the story. Yes. It gets windy up on the river. It does. Your tent so it doesn't blow away. Yep. Always. First thing. But every, so that first night we slept on up on the riverbank because we saw a cabin. So we checked out the cabin and it just looked like murders were happening in there. Yeah. Not to sleep in the cabin, but right next to it instead. Yeah. And then, uh, the kayak team that had been chasing us, the tent life guys, um, they paddled past us into past, past the 11 o'clock hour. So they started later the next day. Yeah. And they had they told us that they found this little island or riverbank and that there was like skulls and fur. Yeah, yeah. They called it the killing field. <laughs> uh so that made made me feel pretty good about the spot we had chosen. Yeah. Um one thing about that spot that uh was different more difficult than the other spots was that the bank was was steeper yeah so pulling the boat up was harder yeah that was that sucked whereas with the with the islands you know the the gradient was much much less and so you could just pull the boat up easily Mm -hmm. in some cases we were just carrying the boat fully loaded way up just dragging it and then unloading it right where yeah. We were camping. Yeah. That, that saves a lot of time. Yeah. Rather than making trips back and yeah. forth. Boat. Yeah. Yeah. Humping stuff up a 10 foot bank uh, after dark is like no fun, man. 
Well, it's actually not dark, but after you stop, it's it sucks. Yeah, because the last thing you want to do is run back no. and forth. No. But again, we were totally green. That was our first campsite. I was just like, oh, there's a cabin. Let's stay there. And I guess our boat could have been a lot lighter. We took a lot yeah. of stuff that we didn't need to take. Yeah. But. Yeah, I would say when you're packing, there's that whole thing of like, when in doubt, leave it out. Like we had what? We had like five knives, a machete and a tomahawk. I mean, a lot of that stuff we could have left behind. And again, the water pump. There was, you know, a lot of stuff that you just, I mean, basically you're paddling, sleeping, and just surviving. So it's basically food, paddling, and sleeping. Anything else is just kind of frivolous. I would say on that note that one of the the two things I think that got me through the race were the discovery of Advil or Tylenol on day four and music. Like we went three days without music and at the end of day three, it was like, it was maddening. The silence was like, it's crazy because you, you, the only thing you have to sit with is your thoughts or your, or your partner's conversation. And when you've got music, at least your mind kind of either it associates memories with the songs or you kind of pick the music apart. It just kind of takes your brain out of the, the, the situation on the river and it just breaks it up. And I think, I think the music for me was huge. And then also the pain meds. Like, I think we ran out of Advil after two days and then the Tylenol. But with the back issues and the ass and everything else, man, I don't think we could have finished. With, um, we could have, but it would have been a hell of a lot more miserable. Yeah. I can't remember. Was I taking Advil? I must we had been. Advil and then we ran out and then you had Tylenol. Okay. There was something. I mean, we just brought a small bottle, which, you know, you don't want to take too much. But it was like the... The English guys, they had like a full pharmacy on board, man. Those guys were those guys were partying down the river. I think some people had a doctor hookup. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, we didn't. But uh the, the music was, was clutch. Uh actually I have the battery bank right next to me here. Oh yeah, that thing was killer. And then we had that little solar panel. This thing well we never used the solar panel. Um, we did? No. That thing lasted the whole week. This, so this battery bank was like the, it's, it's heavy, not going to lie, but it is waterproof, water resistant. And it has a flashlight. It has a flashlight and it fully charged. It lasted us the entire week. We didn't have to recharge it once. Yeah. Um, it, so that's a lot of. Yeah, I think I think charged our our speaker and the iPod, iPad, a pod, like two or three times a day, or twice a day. That speaker was killer too. I don't remember what kind it was, but that thing would last eight hours and before it needed a charge. Yeah, I have that thing out in the in the garage right now. Yeah, um, definitely crucial bits of equipment right there. Probably unnecessary weight, but it's I think it's needed. I would say that the things like pumps and hatchets and shit like that would, I would take a speaker over that any day. I mean, the, the, that machete was good. You had that saw edge on it. We could kind of cut some logs down, but, um, yeah. Yeah. How are you, do. you doing on time? We're at three o'clock. Oh, I'm good. All right. Yeah. Um, 
And then the, I guess the, the fourth system, you're kind of getting into like boat, which is basically all this stuff kind of just bleeds into it itself. But um, we talked about the organization with the food, you know, having your food. Each guy has their own food bag for the day. You grab it, you put it in your station and you pick from that all day. And I would say also another bag that should stay in the station or the items I think um, that we both had, we both had toilet paper, sunblock and bear spray in each station. Cause every time we stopped, first thing we do is whistle, get the bear spray out, have it at the ready. You know, when we were taking swims on the bank, we want to make sure that we're not getting a surprise visit by anybody, but, um, and those things. And then what I didn't, I didn't even think about it because having, you know, we got to remember both of us had never done a canoe race either prior to this, <laughs> prior to this race. Well, but, we, we had never been in a traditional canoe. Yeah. C2. We'd both, yeah. We'd both been in outrigger canoes before. Yeah. Yeah. But we had never paddled a traditional. Canoe. Yeah. And one of the things that I found was very, super interesting the first day was the trimming. Remember how critical, like even a water bag, I remember getting on the boat that first day and being like, fuck man, we're leaning to the left. We're leaning to the left. And then when we stopped that first time, we moved some of the stuff over like a bag. And then we got to the point where we could just move our water bladders to trim it. And it was amazing. Even just a few pounds of water to one side of the boat and the thing would just, would just go flat. And you can feel it. The, the thing is when your boat's not trimmed, all of a sudden your your hips are cocked and your spine's at a compromised position. So you go from this, once you trim the boat out, now you're, you've got proper spinal alignment. You don't think about it, but it's crucial, man, especially if you're paddling 18 hours a day. Well, like you want, you want that boat running flat fore and aft and side to side. And it's also going to affect whoever's in the back steering. Yeah. Uh, because if, if your boat is uh, leaning one side or the other, yeah, it's, it's going to, yeah, it's going to track off. It's going to turn more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd say on that point, too, I think we had pretty good communication paddling together. There were times when definitely I could tell your eyes were closed and you were doing like 50 strokes on the left side. And it was like countering that was, was a bit of work at times, but that was just a matter of like I should have just said switch, but I didn't. I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but just things like that, like having a good, like calling sides and, and switches and, and like, you know, if you're going around a turn, just to have an open communication of like, all right, let's go all left side for a minute to get around this turn or whatever it is, you know, just communicating. But we, we I think we were synced up pretty good and, and we were, the boat was driving really well the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Communication is always a crucial part of anything in life, right? Totally, man. More so when there's only two of you in a canoe in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. If something isn't working, you have to be honest with, with yourself and each other. And, um, yeah. Yeah. The changes are made, you know, whether it's, yeah. you know, you making the change that you yourself, you know, you have to be honest with yourself and be like, oh, well, if something isn't working, it's probably me. So. Yeah. Um, I, I just just thought of this uh, a couple minutes ago, but you were talking about bear spray and yep. bear spray is another thing that CSA doesn't like. Um, yeah. But buy I, it there. I remember in our planning, there was talk about bringing a gun. 
Yeah. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. First of all, I think we saw four bears. The entire yeah. Only one grizzly, but the rest were blacks. One grizzly, a couple, few black bears. Uh, there was that one bear the last day that was swimming right at the boat. Yep. In the middle of the river. I think that was day six, actually. Either way. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as soon as it saw us, it was like, oh, crap, I'm not supposed to be in this river. And did a 180 yeah. way. Um, but I remember in the planning, I had talked to some people from Alaska, and they were kind of split as to whether or not we should bring a gun. Yeah. And um, first of all, trying to get a, gr- a gun across state lines or country lines, mm-hmm. not the easiest thing. Yeah. Secondly, if you have to use a gun, it's probably already too late. Yeah. I think that's, because- that's the, that's the feeling that I got from the people that I asked, you know, and most of the people online that the people that actually know bears, they said, if you have to go for your gun, it's probably too late anyway. Because mm-hmm. it's probably charging down on you. It's and total. What, what are the chances that you're just keeping your gun at your hip? Like Right, right. And you're not going to preemptively shoot a bear if you see it on the bank. You're not going to be like, oh, that thing could attack me. I'm going to shoot it. That's where the spray comes in. you got like a 40-foot, 30-foot range on that thing. And if the spray's not going to stop them, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty much in trouble anyway. So needless to say, we did not bring a gun. No. Even after we, we talked about it multiple times. Yeah. One thing we didn't do, we were not able to practice with our bear spray, which I heard bear spray isn't the easiest thing to use. Right, right. So that's one thing we probably could have. Yeah. Do, but I live in Hawaii. There's no bear spray out here. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't fit. And the shit's not cheap, man. At 45 bucks a can, you don't want to just go out there and practice spraying $45 into the air, you know? Exactly. I mean, uh, so. but that being said, too, where where was it where we left our cans? I mean, so many people come and go from Alaska and buy bear spray and have to leave it behind that if I was to do it again, knowing what I know now, I would ask around for free bear spray from, like, where do we stay? Sven's there in, Fair, in uh, Fairbanks? Yeah, we left it at that camp. Yeah, we left a bunch there. There's always these little stashes of people's camping gear that they leave behind when they fly home. And there's probably so much free bear spray lying around Alaska that, you know, to spend the money on it is, it's not necessary. If you have to, you have to, but there's ways to go get around it. Um, So that was just one thing I wanted to bring up because we hadn't touched on it. And I remember uh, it being a conversation. Yeah. So another thing too, where where we got spun out was an eagle trying to find that customs office. Like they make it sound like, oh, it's up the hill. But I remember I was starting to kind of lose my shit out there. I was like, where is this place? And it's late night. It was eleven o'clock at night. Everybody's asleep. You out. You actually found it. But I, yeah. I forget. It's like up the stairs and then down to the left and down the street. But it's not as easy to find as they make it out. No. Um, definitely I would I would say find it on a map if you can prior to leaving well here's the thing it's a phone booth yeah I think I remember reading it in um, 
the Racing the Yukon book. Yeah. That it was just a phone booth. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the resources we used was Racing the Yukon, uh, yeah. the book that you guys, everyone should pick up if you're racing. It's, uh, it's an easy read. Um, it talks it's the about guy from Florida, right? Yeah. I, I actually don't remember his name. Uh, Rod Price, right? Rod Price, that's right. Yeah. Um, so he he has raced the Yukon a couple times, I think, and uh, he's done Everglades and all those big Florida races. His resume of ultra marathon canoe races is unbelievable. Yeah. The things that he has done, and um, anyhow, if if you're if you're doing the race pick it up if you're not doing the race and you race canoes and you're interested in stuff like that pick up his book it's awesome um you can find it on wherever amazon um but i think in his book he talks about where the checkpoint actually is and i think yeah. i think i highlighted it in the book and yeah. then completely forgot where it was yeah so we get up the stairs we're both we're both ravenous you know, it's, yeah, it was 10 o'clock at night. It's the witching hour. We want to be done. Like we were, we were actually thinking that if we could get it done fast enough, we can get back on the river and paddle some more. Yeah. It turned out that we just, we were running circles around this. I think we were there for a half an hour, man. This literally one street town. Yeah. And it, it turns out that some woman was walking her dog and I, that's right. That's right. I'm running around. I have zinc oxide sunscreen on my face, so I'm totally white face, and I have my compression pants on, and so it just must have been such a sight for this woman. Yeah. And I'm just like, hi, can you please help me? <laughs> I, I need to find the custom station. I've been paddling a canoe for three days and I don't know where to go. And she, the look on her face was just like, oh my God, you're insane. <laughs> it's a good thing you found her because I would have been just like, you look like a zombie. Dude, I was so out of it. I remember you were like, I'll find it. And I was just running around using some pretty colorful language. You were hangry. <laughs> <laughs> I was, man. You, I was. You were exhausted. You were, yeah. you were dehydrated. And you, I don't, I think she would have tried to kill you. Yeah. Probably like, <laughs> this guy, he escaped prison in the States and he's come up here. She probably would have used her bear spray on you. I know. I probably would have got... What the hell was she doing walking her dog at 11 o'clock? Oh, it was 10 o'clock at night. It was 10 o'clock at night. I guess up there when it gets dark at 4 a.m. To, to 6 a.m., it's like, oh, let's go walk the dog. Yeah. But... Um, yeah. Strategy. Yeah, we are kind of running short on time. Um, yeah. I think we're, we're pretty much... Um, we've gotten down to everything. It's just the strategy. And I would say the main thing is you just want to like, you've got a couple of days before the race. Like one of the things that I found was super annoying was the spray skirt on the boat 
and that we had to thread the thing every time we took it off and on. And I would say there, there's got to be a way where you could put little pins on the lower part and just be able to loop it and leave it on, on the skirt. And things like that of just, like we mentioned earlier, of just you've only got so much time in a day, right? And the last thing you want to be doing is like things like pumping water, blowing up your sleeping pad, re-threading a canoe skirt, and all shit like that. Like you could literally save 15, 20 minutes by spending your two days in Whitehorse prior to the race, like really getting your systems dialed. Like pack your food in the barrel, put your day seven food at the bottom, day six on top of that, day five on top of that, day four on top of that. And then just be ready every morning to like grab your bag, put it in the boat, go. You know what I mean? Easy, easy, easy. You want to get to the point. I mean, I would even say a good practicing to do would be go do something for 18 hours, stay up all day or do something the same and then try to go through your equipment when you're completely smoked and tired because that's what it's going to be like. I mean, one thing we didn't touch on was training and preparing for the race. And one thing I read about ultra stuff is don't do the race before the race. And I just, I mean, my training, all I did was I just tried to keep the weights and, and just maintain enough strength in my connective tissue and muscles so that they'd be ready for the load when the time came. I don't think there's anything you can do to prepare for sitting on your ass 18 hours a day. I mean, that's, it's basically torture. You definitely don't want to train that way because you're going to set yourself back. I mean, I kind of try to think of it as like a, like a cell phone battery before making a long distance call. You know, you don't, you don't want to start out with a half full battery. Like you want to be there ready to roll. So if you, if you're going to peak, peak before, you know, periodization and be fully charged up and ready to roll, that's fatigue. That's energy levels. That's everything. You know, I don't really have a, a lot of knowledge in the training department, but I think I was pretty well prepared. I definitely could have been, I think I could have muscled up a little bit more, but you know, everything else held together. So that was pretty good. I would say that as far as training goes, if you are in decent shape, the biggest thing you need to overcome is sleep deprivation. Yeah. You have to be able to be awake legitimately 20 hours and still be able to function. Yeah. Yeah. Or seven or eight days straight. Yeah. Which I don't think there's anything you can train to do that. Well, you can just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, do it, do a dry run of just being awake. Yeah. Yeah. For that amount of time. And, you know, doing your normal day. Yeah. In reality, you aren't sprinting during this race. No. No. It, it is a, walking slash slash light jogging race yeah yeah and um if you keep that in mind you know your heart rate is staying down yeah you know you aren't you're just exerting for a long period of time at a low level yeah exerting at a high level for a low period of time yeah yeah um so as long as your body is fueled and you're honest with yourself about your your personal health and you communicate with your partner about your own things that are falling apart or 
checking in on your partner to make sure yep. they aren't falling apart. Yeah. And you can overcome the sleep deprivation part. Mm -hmm. Then I think this race is achievable. Totally. But to your point, you can't really. It's hard to train for a thousand mile race if you aren't already kind of kind of there. Now, yeah. Um, it's it's a big it's a big matzo ball. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would say not to say that you couldn't come off the couch to do it. Yeah, your your odds you are are coming up off the couch a year in advance. Yeah, yeah, and I would say when assessing your abilities for this race, I would say the number probably the most crucial factor of the whole thing is heart or wanting it. Like you have to want it. If you're even remotely thinking like, oh, I'll just go, and if I gotta tap, I'll tap, you can't. Like once you're past Fort Yukon in there, you're gone. Like you are off the face of the earth. There's nothing, you know, there's a few places in between, you know, like Fort Stevens, or whatever, and between Carmax and, and Dawson where there's a couple places where if you wanted to, but if you're going to put the money in, right, you know, we never, we never address the cost thing, but you know, it's getting there, getting gear, getting, I mean, it's 10 grand to do the race. And now it's even, they've doubled the price of entry. So it's, it's even more money. So I mean, I think most of the people that are signing up for it do want it. And I think that John and those guys are pretty good at vetting people. I mean, they, they really did a good job our year of kind of seeing who was, you know, more, more into posting shit on Facebook than actually doing the paddling. But I would say that's probably the most critical thing is the heart and the actually wanting it. I mean, because if you want something bad enough, dude, there's nothing that's going to stop you. I mean, there were days like day four we talked about that smoky rainy crappy day and there was a couple of times in there where i was like if a boat pulled up right now i would very seriously consider getting on it but that was only a fleeting thought it was like no we're gonna finish we started we're gonna finish and those i gotta say those were probably some of the most physically miserable experiences of my life some of those days of like being the most exhausted and just absolutely out of your mind fatigued of my entire existence like nothing has been that hard and to be able to just sit with that in that minute of like i would tap right now i would go for a warm bed like it's amazing that does how strong the desire is for simple comforts like just like the touch of your partner or a warm bed with clean sheets or like a hot shower it's like it becomes almost like it's otherworldly. It's just like, oh my God, just a little bit of comfort would be so good right now. But that being said, and being on the other side of it now, pushing through that fatigue and coming out the other end, not only just finishing, but doing as well as we did was just like, that's a, a pride and something that I'll live with with the rest of my life, knowing that I pushed through those shitty times. And here we are, we're talking about it a year and a half later. And, you know, it was just, it's worth, the, it's worth the suffering. But you definitely gotta want it. Yeah, I think I think that might be a good place to wrap up. Yeah. Mind, mind over matter. Totally. And being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yep. So. Awesome. Well, I think.
think this was a good start. Yeah. Uh, in the future, I hope we can elaborate on different races. I know you have the Chattajack coming up. Yeah, so leaving in about uh, two hours. I think that uh, in the future, we should talk about that thing. That yeah. Jack, very popular race down in Tennessee. We mentioned yeah, we ben. should talk to Ben, too, man. He's he's uh, he's a sleeper. Yeah, Key West, the Cuba to Key West, Yukon solo. We'll have to definitely tap his brain at some point. He's the mastermind behind that race. And, yeah. Uh, the race that you and I both love. Uh, I will not be attending this year, unfortunately. And uh, But we'll uh, touch on that. We've got some other things in mind. So hopefully we can keep people interested. Yeah. And discover new technology to make this even better and better. So. Yeah. Nice, man. Always learning, always going forward. That's right. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Please give us a share if you enjoyed our podcast and tune in next time as we dive into more paddling and a little bit of life. Keep moving forward. Much aloha, everyone.